My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is the Return to Embodiment. here with Rosie Poloka. She's a graduate of the Columbia College Dance Movement Therapy and Counseling Program. In this conversation, we explore movement, reclaiming the body, and the politics of pleasure. We look at the practices that fulfill Rosie, as well as her clinical insights that guide her in her work. I am so excited to be with you to have this conversation about embodiment, what it means to you. Um, Can we maybe start with the question, uh, what is embodiment or how is embodiment to you? Um, Two people come to mind. Um, First, A peer of mine in my cohort, Sarah Broussard, who did her whole thesis on embodiment, um, and that yielded some really rich work. Um, And also, I just, um, I've been listening to um, Christine Caldwell's interview about embodiment, and so I'm just acknowledging that that's also in my mind. Embodiment for me is the capacity to tune in to what's going on within myself and in my body. Embodiment is also the ability to track sensations and to follow sensations and ultimately to practice um, authority of the body in such a way that I can use movement and my body to regulate or to move things around or to be expressive or to be in a different place than I'm in. Can you speak more to the authority of the body? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, um, again, the lineage is, I'm picking this up from Caldwell, who's picking it up from Jordan. Um, but yeah, the authority of the body is um, the knowing that our bodies have about themselves. Um, so you and I have been talking about birth. Um, there is a lot of body authority that happens during the birthing process. The body knows what it's doing, right? It's, um, sometimes it's outside people who can stifle that body authority and saying, well, we know it's best. And the way that body authority has been talked about a lot is, um, through the conversation of bodies that have been oppressed and what happens when a body's authority is taken away from itself. Body authority is the knowing that you have of oneself. Can you speak to why or um, in the ways in which that's important for you in terms of how you work? Especially in doing trauma work um, and also working with folks who um, have been pushed to the margins a lot of times. Um, It's so important to work in that way because I'm not saying that I know what's best for anyone's body. That's actually not my job. Um, My job is to cultivate a space of curiosity so that we can both 
kind of figure it out at the same time, whatever that figuring it out means and looks like to that person. Um, so sure, I have education and I have experience and I have ideas of what might be helpful in certain situations. Um, but ultimately I, I can't say that I know exactly what a body needs at a particular time. It's that's, I'm shooting for the wrong thing. If that's what I'm shooting for, if that's what I'm trying to do, I'm, I'm working against the process and against both of us at that point, it would actually be much more beneficial to work with the person to notice again, to tune in, notice where sensations are, notice what things are wanting to happen. And then can we, um, explore some of those impulses, um, so that the person that I'm working with is also has control. Can you give an example of how you would work with embodiment, uh, body authority? Common thing that would happen a lot of times is um, bodies folding in on themselves and trying to get very small and not take up a lot of space, um, right? Which makes sense if you've experienced a lot of trauma, like the want to disappear, basically to not be seen. It's so much safer. If you're not seen, it's so much for for some people. Um, so if I was working with someone that was getting smaller in the course of us working together or talking like in that moment, I might follow that and let the body retreat in the way that it needs to retreat. So sometimes I would offer would you like to move closer to the wall or would you like to move closer to the corner? Does it feel like we need to um, not be in the center of the room? Uh, does it, how does a blanket or a sheath or something to wrap around you sound right now? Do you feel like that would actually, right? So it's kind of going in the direction of the movement as opposed to trying to fight against it and open it up. We might not be there yet. Um, and then when we're in this smaller place, exploring what that's about and what's living there and how that is. Um, so it's, it's more about me kind of following someone and following what's naturally happening. Um, and then, of course, I also like I can be more directive if um, we need to slow down. Right. If something's going too quickly. Um then we can ground and kind of take a pause in the movement or whatever we're doing. But body authority and, um, and embodiment would be me journeying along with someone and naming what's happening and bringing awareness to what's happening to support the connection between their own mind and body, as opposed to trying to put my mind and body onto their experience. If I can even be with someone to be curious about why their body is contracting and why it's wanting to get small, that's huge. As opposed to being like, well, that's really scary. Let's open up and be really big. Well, we might not be ready for that yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So trusting the body and what it's saying, even maybe if the client doesn't yet trust it, him or herself, um, Trusting that there is something wise that is being spoken that can guide toward a healing impulse. So rather than imposing uh, a change, oh, you're retreating, let's sit up straight, rather than correcting, 
there's space allowed for the unfolding of what is happening to be seen, felt, heard, held. Right. Like they're, um, folks, the folks bodies and movement of their emotions and movements of their thoughts. Like it's, it's giving me a lot of information, right? So it's, um, in that sense, yeah, it is very much a guide, right? Like if someone, if you're watching someone retreat away from you, that's important information. So instead of being like, this is something that needs to be fixed. What is this communicating to me? How can I be curious about this? And how can I see this as, um, potentially something that's playing out that might be very important for that person to play out in that moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you describe uh, where the connection to embodiment began in your life? What fed it and uh, what moved you into the path that you are in right now? Yeah, um, I think it started when I was asked to go to my first dance class. Um, a friend, I was in eighth grade and it was, it felt like the first time, um, that being expressive with my body felt really good. Um, like my first, my first taste of, of, yeah, of using my body for expression in a way that felt really wonderful and fun and not in a way that was like someone telling me to do something with my body, but like, here are these steps, have fun with it. We're going to put some really good music on. And, um, yeah. And then when I realized how good it felt, um, I wasn't quite sure what was happening in my body, but I knew it was something to follow and to do. Um, and then fast forward, I ended up, um, going to college for dance, um, at Colorado college. And it was, it had a big modern focus when I realized, um, what it felt like to move emotion. That was, that was, it was, that was like the beginning of all of this for me. There was no going back after that. Um, yeah, we just did such deep study into like, um, what are all of the things that I can do with my body to express and to communicate? Um, and doing that with others is, uh, was a really, that's an important piece of it because I wasn't in a vacuum. I wasn't by myself. I was always dancing with other people and that was really, really important. And still now to move, um, I don't know if I really prefer like synchronized dancing, like from a choreographic sense, but just moving together with people in synchrony will always feel good to me. There's something happening there. Um, and so I think, yeah, that was all kind of the beginning of me um, being really into this idea of embodiment and what is it. And like also knowing that it was, such an open universe. I was never going to find the thing and then land and then be done with it. Like that doesn't, 
It doesn't happen with embodiment. Embodiment isn't like a place that you land at. It's like a practice. It's a thing. It's a, it's a way of moving and breathing in the world. So I would be endlessly, um, curious about it. I couldn't not be because it was always changing. It was process, not product. Mm -hmm. Can you name or describe some of the practices that inspired you the most, guided you the most on this path? Yeah. So in terms of dance, it was, yeah. So dance and, and hip hop and modern and um, improv was also so important. Uh, contact improv was so important. The first time I had experienced that was in college. I was also trying so many different kinds of movements. Um, my professor was um, a trainer in gyrokinesis and gyrotonics. We had summer festivals where we were doing all kinds of different um, dances. And then I started training capoeira um, a lot more seriously after college. Um, and that was a whole other kind of experience of embodiment, um, especially in relationship. Um, and then I got really into yoga. Um, and that was another huge shift. Um, and that actually felt and still feels a lot more like prayer, um, to me than it does feel like a movement practice. It actually feels a lot more like a practice of prayer. Mm. Yeah. And now I'm, um, I'm going to be in my first like burlesque show, um, coming up and that's going to be a whole other different kind of experience. Right. So it's, yeah, but dance and capoeira and yoga, um, I would say are probably the biggest movement practices that have informed my experience of embodiment. When you, when you went into the dance movement therapy program, you had to write a thesis. Could you talk about how your thesis, the, the topic of your thesis, what drew you to it um, and how that relates to being embodied and embodiment? Yeah. That's so, probably a really huge question considering it was a long thesis. Yes, <laughs> it is, but it's okay. Um, yeah, my thesis was on belonging. Um, and I came to it because as a biracial person who's also um, racially ambiguous and never grew up around people besides my siblings who occupied the same racial ethnic spaces that I did, um, I felt kind of lost a lot um, and not ever really knowing where I was supposed to be. Like, where is home? Where's home? Like, what... What does that feel like? And who are those people? Um, and so I searched for myself in so many different places. Um, I think probably just trying to search for that exhale, that yield that you feel when you're just like, ah, okay, everything is right. And I'm home now and I know where I am and I know where I'm supposed to be. Um, yeah. So I had, I, I, I was working out a lot of, um, different parts of my identity. I also, um, discovered my own queerness and in grad school. And that was also, um, a huge transitional space and trying to find myself as someone who was older kind of coming out. What does that mean? And what does that look like? And, and, um, that was hard to find home in also because all of my, um, queer friends had been out for years and years and years at that point. 
um, coming out later in life is a different experience, even though I was only in my thirties, but still, um, so yeah, it was about belonging. Um, and embodiment is all over that, right? Cause I experience, um, my, my, you know, when I'm connecting to my race, that feels that is, that brings up different, um, sensations and impulses in my body in the same way that, um, thinking about my sexuality brings up different impulses and sensations in my body. And what does it mean to be someone who also passes in a lot of different spaces? And, um, what is the experience of passing with embodiment? So was there, um, was the finding home connected to a sense of, you said yield, um, yielding in the body? Was it an, was, is home an embodied phenomenon? Is belonging an embodied phenomenon? Mm -hmm. Probably. Yeah. Because I had to, because of basically what I found out, like this is, this is the, um, the ta-da moment was that it was really about me belonging to myself and, um, more than it was about me figuring out where I belonged externally in space. So you could argue that like, yeah, that in order for me to find belonging, I also kind of had to practice embodiment and that they were, um, there's so much overlapping space there. Um, and me finding my own belonging to myself was me also tuning into, right? It was tuning into the sensations. It was following the impulses. It was eventually what I had found out that there was a lot with forgiveness and reclamation and self-love. And that was kind of, that was also in there. Um, but yeah, what came out of that was me feeling like, okay, well, um, I guess I belong to myself and I guess my experiences belong to myself and I guess this body is mine. So it's more about, it's more about how was I inviting myself back home, back in. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So taking from your, your own story, the practices that inspired you, connected you, um, as well as your coming out in college, um, your biracialness, um, and that finding of home within, how do those things inform your work now? In particular, how does that inform working with people whose bodies are marginalized? Yeah. Um, so I absolutely had to have done my own work before doing this work with other people. I would hope any counselor, any dance movement therapist, any person who's in this kind of um, work would know that like you have to do that work with self in order to do work with other. Um, but I would say, I think one of the things that I take to my work um, a lot from the work that I've done is, is um, how do we hold space for all of the contradictions that we have within ourselves. Um, 
you know, there's, um, my sister told me this quote such a long time ago and it's always, it's stuck with me ever since it's Walt Whitman's like, um, do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself. I'm large. I contain multitudes. Like how do I hold space for the part of, um, I'm the colonizer and the colonized. I'm the powerful and the powerless. There's, there's so many different things going on within myself at all times. And so when I'm working with someone else, I also acknowledge that they too contain their own intersections and, um, those might be, they might have sharp edges against each other. Um, it might be that one part of their identity, um, feels more powerful than the other one or has been more marginalized than marginalized than another part of their identity. Like how is there just space for kind of all of it? How do we create space for all of that? How do we not feel like we have to choose a side? That's such a big thing with being biracial. You know, everyone always asks, well, which side do you feel like you're more of, right? Like, cause folks, just, I mean, the brain just wants to compartmentalize and people want you to choose, choose a box, choose a side, choose where you're at. And I'm, you know, because I'm so ambiguous in a lot of different ways, I can kind of belong everywhere and nowhere at the same time. You know, I can pass in so many spaces and also I'm never quite this. I'm never quite it. There's always something that's a little bit different. Right. But I would imagine that's probably how it is for a lot of people. So, um, yeah. And I also, I also really like to, um, as much as I can work with folks to, build a compassionate stance towards themselves to just bear witness to what's happening. Um, and I'm taking this from Caldwell again, but like, how can we postpone meaning for, for a second here and just like bear witness to everything that's going on and everything that's happening. Um, especially in this political climate and working with the folks that I'm working with, things can be extremely triggering and tumultuous all the time. Right. And it can be, it's so easy to say, well, let's fix it. Let's find the answer. Let's find what you are, what you need to do, what needs to happen next. Um, but creating a space where we can just pause to witness all of the moving parts. Um, and to identify what messages we receive from ourselves and what messages have been put on our bodies from other people, um, parsing that out, being able to just kind of see it all. I see humans as kind of like ecosystems, right? And universes and galaxies. And, um, and so my job in working with someone else, especially someone who occupies, um, a lot of spaces that have been oppressed is how do we, how do we compassionately bear witness to all of those parts? Um, what parts need to be spoken and always offering my ears and my eyes to that, um, an environment where I hold no judgment. Right. And also how can I be a human and show up and be really, really real when judgment does show up and how can I be clear and honest in that work as well, which is also so important, right? Like I'm absolutely not some guru and I like, <laughs> I have my own stuff. And, um, I think it's important that we also be really real about that. So I move things away from the space so that the person has room to be with all parts of themselves. Mm. I think that's what I try to do most because I felt like I needed space. Space to not have to 
make a conclusion Mm -hmm. or define Mm -hmm. or categorize, but space to be in ambiguity in the Mm -hmm. unknown and observing with curiosity as opposed to forcing any direction. Right. Right. So it's almost, it's almost like it's coming full circle to the body authority in your description of how you work with someone um, clinically, right? You just build that trust mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in process itself, mm-hmm. right? Right. And 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 what what happens when that's terrifying? Mm-hmm. What happens when what's going on is actually uh, not something a person can tolerate, mm-hmm. holding on their own? Yeah, I mean the one of the things that comes to mind really quickly is um we'll take the example of numbing, especially for people who've survived a lot of trauma. Um it can be a normal response for that person to have kind of a superpower of numbing, of numbing themselves out when something gets to be too much or too scary. Um and again, it can be really easy as a therapist to say that's a bad way of dealing with things. Don't numb anymore, right? Like it would be so easy to say that. I actually tell folks, listen, your strategic ways of coping have kept you alive until this point. So let's honor those strategic ways of coping, no matter what they are. So when something gets to be too much in the moment, I have worked with people that are like, remember you have that superpower of numbing. We're just going to get really good at knowing how to dial that down in increments and how to dial it back up when you need it. Because the truth is, is that a lot of people are also going back to really unsafe spaces. And what does my responsibility look like if I were to completely open them up and now they're raw and now they have to go back to, right? Like that's not... Completely vulnerable and open Mm -hmm. in a space that is unsafe. Right. That cannot tolerate that. Right. Right. That wouldn't be... um, uh, that wouldn't be great judgment on my part. Right. So like, what are the strategic coping skills that are already alive and exist in that person? How can we name them and um, be very clear about what they are and what purposes they serve and when they use these strategic coping skills? That's one piece. And then over time, of course, we work to, okay, what other options do we have as opposed to numbing or how does numbing start to shift the itself? So that it's more of a containment than it is a numbing, right? So all of that work can be done. And that that's one piece. Um, another piece that I think is really important to mention um, is that I use humor a lot. Um, humor is really important to me. And I use a lot of humor in trauma work. And when I say that, I think some people get the idea that like I'm making fun of the trauma or that it's, you know, and... That's not necessarily the case unless unless that's supportive to somebody to laugh at it. Um, But trauma is already scary. um, And a lot of people live in bodies that are terrorized by other people every day and all the time. And that's already scary. So I don't need to make anything any more scary (laughs) by... um, by myself getting really dark in the moment, right? Like I don't need to collude with the trauma. I don't need to collude with the fear. Um, and so humor is one of the things that keeps 
uh, my spine strong and keeps my belly intact and soft and also engaged. Um, and I plant those seeds early on in the relationship so that we know that we have exit doors through, um, laughter. Yeah. So what is it that, um, that the humor does? What does it do to the moment where trauma is present? I have a perfect example for this, actually. We were in a trauma group and um, someone had gotten really dysregulated um, and started to dissociate. And I have a, I had a relationship with this person. And so I knew that movement was actually really helpful. So um, I guided us to put our feet on the ground and to um, start to extend our arms forward until our elbows were straight and say my space and go to the sides and say my space, press up, say my space, press down, say my space. And this actually wasn't my use of humor. This was the person's. Um, but the next time we um, extended our arms forward with our fingers spread, um, she actually chimed in and said Facebook and made a joke <laughs> between yeah. MySpace and Facebook. And everyone in the room just started cracking up laughing. And it it interrupted it. Um, it interrupted the the fear cycle, it interrupted the, cause we were grounding, but the tension was also still there. Um, it was still potent. You could still feel it. Um, and when this person made that joke, people's bellies were engaging with the laughter, with the contractions. Um, there's some buoyancy to it. There's some, um, vibration. Yeah. There's some vibration to it. And it was the best intervention that could have happened. Um, and it came from someone else and then the whole room broke. And I, after we were processing it and someone very kindly said, you know, Rosie, you were doing a great job and that was fine. But honestly, what helped me was the laughing. And I was like, no, I know. Yes, it, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of groups because as the facilitator, I couldn't say that it was one of the members who had to crack a joke in order for it to dissipate. There was some kind of an impulse mm -hmm. towards interruption towards disrupting the tension mm -hmm. that was a healing impulse. Yeah. It was a regulatory impulse and it involved joking and then everyone's nervous system mm -hmm. systems kind of like resetting. Mm -hmm. And I would use that a lot also in psychosocial groups too, when we were learning things that were super intense um, and I'd use sarcasm a lot and, um, it kind of, it, it interrupted the mind, right? Because if the mind's trying to spiral down and if the trauma sees like, ah, oh, I have a in here, I can really take over the system. Humor is like, settle down, <laughs> take a break. Um, we actually, we're going to run the show here. I'm hearing you describe this group and the power that humor had in resetting the collective systems through vibration, through abdominal engagement, through a moment of buoyancy, I think was the word you used. And so I'm curious as to what is happening to embodiment in the space that is the downward spiral that you've described. 
mm-hmm. what is happening in terms of the connection to the ecosystem that is me mm-hmm. and how do you as the clinician know it? I'm going to be referencing folks that have experienced a lot of developmental trauma and I've now met them a little bit later in life. Um, developmental trauma and complex trauma, just meaning that the trauma ha- was pervasive and chronic and happened at developmentally um, vulnerable times in a person's life. Um, but what happens essentially is that the, the body shapes around the traumatic experience. Um, and so for some, um, the trauma was additive for some, it was subtractive for some, it was emotional and physical or sexual, financial, spiritual abuse. For some, it was neglect and the withholding of love, the withholding of presence, the withholding of, um, yeah, touch, um, touch that is wanted and feels good and is healthy and all that. And so bodies that have experienced that shape around that experience. Um, and then what that looks like in the body can show up in any number of different ways. It can show up in increased tension. It can show up in, um, body pain, numbing, um, nervous systems that are hijacked and moving really quickly. You know, we talk a lot about fight, flight, freeze. We don't talk as much about collapse and please, you know, how do you please your way out of a situation in order to survive it? And how does that become an embodied practice for someone's survival? And what does that look like? So if we were to say that embodiment is the ability to tune in and to connect, trauma probably hates embodiment, right? Like trauma wants disconnection, trauma wants darkness, it wants isolation, it wants, because if it wants to continue to live in a system, in a body system, then it doesn't want any of that stuff. It wants things to remain severed, right? It wants the narrative to stay severed from the emotions. It wants the person to stay severed from their relationships and from their safety. It wants the brain to stay severed from the body. So I think for a lot of people, it's kind of learning how to walk again, Um, you know, especially for folks who have been on the planet for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what is it like to put my feet on grass and try and see what that feels like again? Um, can I tune in to what my body is sensing without getting thrown out of my window of tolerance, right? Because there can also be so much sensitivity to light, touch, sound, all of that. Um, sometimes it's a hyper awareness of, I can feel every sensation and it's too much. So therapeutic work, dance movement therapy, working with trauma is taking a practice of embodiment one step at a time, titrating, going back and forth in between doing the work and returning to safe space, whatever that safe space is for someone. Cause for a lot of folks, the safe space is the numb space. How do we recognize that and allow that to still be a safe space? Right. Okay. Got it. You need it to numb. Cool. And here we are. Um, so yeah, it's interrupting patterns and building new pathways and building new patterns. And it's also about, if possible, and when possible, how do you bring the somatic memories of strength to integrate with the somatic memories of powerlessness, 
vulnerability, shock, pain, all of that stuff. It's kind of like, how do we resource the strong ones in the body right now to kind of come up and support us and help us in this moment? Because a lot of folks who have experienced pervasive trauma have also one or two memories of when they felt strong, competent, in trust, mm, powerful, right? Like, so how do we access and resource those and start to integrate and bring them back in? How is body authority in that work? Yeah, I see body authority in that work a lot with pacing. Um, and the body will communicate when something is going too quickly and when something needs to slow down. It's our job to be able to read that well. So body authority is, I think, has a lot to do with, um, pacing and, um, a lot to do with when it's ready to go to the next thing. Sure. It would be wonderful to get someone to the space of being able to extend their arms out and take up space and open up their heart area. And, um, sure. That sounds wonderful. How do I believe in the shared body authority that's happening in the room that we are going to take steps towards that as the body is ready for that so that we're also not reenacting some kind of traumatic thing of being like, you're ready for this. And the person's like, no, I'm not. Um, so I see body authority a lot with pacing in this context. On giving control to the, to the client, to mm-hmm. the person who's doing the work in terms of when and how they're ready to go. Right. It's important to mention too, I don't want to completely glorify the body to say that the body always knows what's best, right? Like the, like I always know because trauma might be driving the ship a lot of times, right? So um, again, how do we pace with following impulses and also just sitting with them before the, before they've happened, right? Like if someone has an impulse to punch me in the face, I'm not necessarily going to say, trust your body, hit me. You know what I mean? Like that. So I also need to be in conversation with and in contact with like what is unfolding right now. Can we bring our attention to that? Mm-hmm. So if I can't tolerate what's happening within or my system is hijacked from within, mm-hmm. I may need to look outside mm-hmm. to see what's going on. Right. Which is another exit door, right? And like, how do we establish exit doors kind of like in the beginning, right? So at any point in time, it's like, how can I know that I can go back to the corner, put the blanket around me and we're going to pause? How do I know that I can be like, I'm not going to shame my numbing response. I'm going to actually know this is how I've survived most of my life. So I have it with me. It's intact. I'm going to put the dial up on it when I really need to. And I'm in the safety of this person to also start to tolerate some of the things that the numbness doesn't want me to be able to tolerate. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. It's good. Mm-hmm. The finding home, the finding of belonging to oneself mm-hmm. in all of its multiplicity of mm-hmm. contradictions or mm-hmm. uncertainties. So um, as we've been talking and we've been talking about uh, developmental trauma and embodiment, body authority. I was reminded of the Judith Herman quote, 
no intervention that takes power away from the survivor can possibly foster recovery. And um, how do we build that authority, that sense of um, recovery coming from something within and not just something without? Mm -hmm. Right, because for so many folks, um, and this is the catch, is that in order to do trauma work, a lot of times you're doing body work and body is the place of the violence. I mean, I think this is why I love so much of the research of Brene Brown. And when she talks about trust isn't built in grand gestures, it's built, she compares it to a marble jar. She says it happens one marble at a time. And that would be the same for trust in self. Um, and everyone's marble looks different. Um, but it happens one passing moment at a time. Um, and maybe for some people, trust in self is taking a sip of water when they feel thirsty instead of not, or agreeing to call a friend later that night, even when you don't really want to, because you don't want to check in, but they kind of suggested that maybe it would be a good idea if you did. Right. So these marbles of trust happen for different people in different ways. Um, but essentially for folks who feel like there is no home in the body because there never was, it's been beaten away or it's been abused away in some way. Um, it's not really about trying desperately to find the home. It's about building it from the ground up, um, one brick at a time. And that's done through, it can be done through sense work and, um, through finding where someone's pleasure is guiding you towards. So, okay. You have, you had no one in your life. Got it. You still have no one in your life and all you can remember are horrible things. What is your favorite smell? What's your favorite sweater? What socks feel good to you? What's your favorite piece of music? What is anything that brings you one granule pleasure and let's start there and then build. And then that happens in the space of the relationship, right? So, um, which is also potentially firing neural pathways that maybe have never been fired before. Um, so there's also that happening, which you don't necessarily have to communicate, but you know that that's happening for that person in that moment. Somehow pleasure itself is one of the avenues of building trust in one's self. Right. Yeah. Which for some, even hearing the word pleasure is too much, right? So it might be something to know it as a clinician, kind of like, this is what we're doing. Um, cause it's also, it's also radical to say that what you're doing is pleasure work with someone who's experienced trauma, because for a lot of people, um, I don't know, this is something that's personal to me, but sometimes I feel like pleasure is held too far to some sort of end line, the finishing place. Like, um, what we're doing is safety work. We can't even think about pleasure. And I challenge that, um, because I, I believe in people who have experienced trauma and I don't think that pleasure is something that they can only wish for in their wildest dreams. 
even if that's, that is the case for them, I, I hold more hope for them. That pleasure can creep in earlier in the process. Um, and pleasure can also be something that we build tolerance for, to be able to tolerate pleasure, to be able to tolerate something that feels good. Socks that feel good on your feet. Yes. That might be dysregulating for some people. And I, I believe in doing that work. Um, because I think we're robbed of it at such a young age, whether you've experienced trauma or not. And so to say that like, yeah, I'm going to be trauma informed, but I'm also going to be healing centered and yeah, we're going to do safety work, but I'm also going to consider your pleasure and what pleasures you and what pleasure you have in your life. That's, it's a radical way of doing work. Can you say more about your influences that moved you towards valuing pleasure? Yes. That pretty much solely, well, not solely, but a lot of it comes from Adrienne Marie Brown, um, who just wrote a book on pleasure activism and um, has mentioned it a lot in her work in Emergent Strategy. And she's also very clear about the people who inspire her, including Octavia Butler and Audre Lorde, who has made the invitation to use the erotic as power, and uh, Tony Bambara, who said, let's make the revolution irresistible. Um Pretty much the black feminist movement um, has centered um, pleasure as a source of power and transformation and reclamation. Um, And so I'm very inspired by all of that. Um, And though they're not talking about it in the clinical realm, it applies. And how would you connect that with this idea of embodiment how is pleasure in relation to embodiment yeah well the first thing that comes to mind is how common it is for people's pleasure embodiment of pleasure to be stifled or cut off or shamed or um yeah especially for women and especially for LGBT folks, um, especially for young people, especially for older adults. Like there's so many different groups of people whose, um, embodied experiences of pleasure are shamed. Um, or not prioritized, right. Or not prioritized. Their, their pleasure isn't the most important one. Right. Right. Their comfort is Mm -hmm. not as important as other people's. Right. Right. And so, yeah, like to create an environment where someone, um, can feel what it feels like to have it be okay to explore pleasure. Um, this smells really good to me. It feels, let's say someone starts to explore self-massage for them putting their hands on their own feet, on their own knees, on their own shoulders, whatever it is, right? Um, And creating a space where that's okay and where um, that's allowed and that's supported. That's also bringing back that body authority, right? Like body's like, this feels really good to me. And usually it's like someone else or the mind or something that's like, no, this is bad. This is wrong. This is dirty. And so we stifle it. And it doesn't get to complete its loop. Um, And there's nothing wrong with people exploring their own pleasure, even though we've been told that from so many different places. Um, 
throughout the lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And pleasure can be taking the route of pleasure can also be a road to embodiment. Right. I keep on mentioning the feet, but like, um, my sister just had a baby and she had slippers that she wore that made her feet feel good. That's great. Right. So starting from the floor up, you know, what, um, and working with body parts that also feel the safest in the moment. Um, and a lot of times hands and feet can feel safe because they're furthest away from vital organs and, um, but yeah, exploring pleasure. What, okay. What makes your feet feel good? That's pleasure work. Yeah. And then how does that support processes that are a part of embodiment, which is tuning in, noticing sensations, following impulses. Oh, well, now I want to put my feet and now I want to take them out of the socks. They're too hot now. Okay. That's great awareness. Wonderful. Let's have them be free now. Now I want to put my feet on the ground. Okay. Let's do that. Let's put our feet on the ground. Right. So that's all in support of body authority and all in support of embodiment. Uh, perhaps for some people, just one body part at a time or one area at a time. And um, it seems like that has a lot of implication for sexuality as well. Um, mm-hmm. Interpersonal pleasure and communication around pleasure mm-hmm. and permission to um, experience pleasure and have someone else hold space for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to. There's no reason why I should plug this book, but I have to right now. Um, it's called Healing Sex by Stacey K. Haynes. And so much of it is about what you just mentioned and this topic also of like, how do I, how do I intrapersonally and interpersonally experience pleasure as it relates to intimacy and sexuality um, in a way that feels well paced for me? in a way that feels consensual in a way way that feels healthy in a way that feels like I have control and it's not just someone dictating what I should be doing or following cues in my mind that were planted from other people outside of me shaming me a long time ago so that there is consent so that there's actually a tracking with one's own sense of pleasure as guiding as opposed to obligation or coercion or freezing or right you have to wonder what the relationship is between where young people are at now um and kind of like starting to explore sexual intimacy with other people what's the relationship between that and also the stifling that happens very young right so like if i was if i was taught that like exploring my own body was a not okay thing, that it was dirty, that it was punishable, that it was whatever, then no one should be surprised if I have no idea how to communicate and consent later on in life when I haven't really explored what feels good yet. I might not know what feels good yet. (laughs) Um, And I might be exploring that in the moment with someone else who may or may not care about my pleasure and who may or may not be connected to their own and who may or may not what know might not know what consent is. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I would love to see what sexual intimacy looks like in places where people aren't shamed to touch themselves and explore pleasure as it naturally happens in development. Um, And going along with the embodiment piece with pleasure is there disembodied sexuality 
And how is that in the conversation as well? Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of folks, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot of people who have disembodied sex all the time, Um, especially if someone has experienced a lot of trauma, right? It's normal to dissociate um, when you're trying to please someone else or trying to do what you think is quote unquote normal or trying to do what you think is quote unquote healthy. Um, I think there are plenty of people who probably leave their bodies, um, because for whatever reason, it might not feel safe enough or be comfortable enough to say, Hey, I noticed that I'm shutting down. Maybe I should stop doing this thing or maybe this let's press pause. Um, and there might be other things that feel pleasurable about that. So for some folks, it might be really important to be able to say, yes, I have sex. It might, that might be, how should I say this? It might be pleasurable to that person to be able to claim that, let's say like in social networks or in friends or to themselves. And yet there might also be a piece of it that is disembodied. Um, because it might just be too much. Who knows what that person's history is. So yeah, pleasure. I think it's complex. I think it's layered. And, um, and I think each person would probably have a really different experience of, of those things. How beautiful it could be to ground sexuality in body authority and um, simple um, moments that give permission for pleasure and for consent and for pause and for stepping back in the developing of trust sexually. Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of folks, certain communities have, um, have that kind of verbal consent built into them and a lot of them don't. And So a lot of folks are trying to figure it out as they go. And again, the step-by-step to that is like, there's a sensation happening. I notice it. I speak it. And all of that is happening in, hey, can we pause? All of those things just happened in that. Um, And so if we're not noticing first, if we're not tuning in first, if we're not like dropping in and dropping down first, then how can we expect to get to the, hey, can we pause? Right, so it all comes back to like, how can I find the spaces to practice tuning in, dropping in, connecting to what is this sensation? What is going on here? And then how do I find the voice to speak that? This feels good, keep going. Can we pause? Can we stop altogether? Right. I'm right, out. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely want my children to have that phrase as well. Yeah. I'm out. Yeah. Right. Which again, how can people practice saying that and not have any repercussions? So that, right. Like how can we also be the people that folks can say, no, you're done and I'm leaving. And how can on the inside we go, okay, yay, you spoke up for your, you know what I mean? But I mean, you know, sometimes there's a lot of other stuff going on when people say that, but how do you also support someone in finding their voice and saying, this doesn't feel good. I'm stopping. 
Yes. And that reminds me of the clinical space. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean. Right. Resistance. Right. right. Like that's what it is. It yeah. Is something about this is too much for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm used to people making me do things I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. And how can the conversation keep going after, no, I don't want to, instead of, because in a lot of households, then that's when people disconnect. Or get hit. Or get hit. Right. Mm-hmm. So now there's like a hard termination and then there's no more talking about it. So like, how can that be the beginning of the conversation as opposed to the end of it? Great. Now we have something to talk about. Mm-hmm. You really don't want to do this. You know something. Right. You have some embodied knowledge. Can you mm-hmm. tell me about that? Mm-hmm. How do you know that you don't want to do this? What tells you? Right. Yeah, it's all grist for the mill, whether it feels pleasurable or not. It's all valuable to notice and to tune into and to speak to, to practice speaking to in safety. Yeah. And um, for your future, what are you dreaming? What are you looking toward? I'm dreaming so many things. Um, I'm really interested in the work that's happening with trauma using psychedelic psychotherapy uh, with the MAPS program. I really wonder if anyone's asking Indigenous folks who are still using um, earth medicine, what their opinion is, um, and what words of advice they have. I'm also really interested in continuing to bridge pleasure activism and clinical trauma work. And I'm also interested in, um, creating spaces with my sister and what that looks like in terms of, um, creating spaces where people can show up and land. If we put all our labor into fighting what we don't like, we will learn to love the fight and have only longing for our vision. And who said that? A person named Gopal read it at a panel on YouTube that I watched because he saw it on a tattoo of a labor union fighter. And what was it that you loved about that quote? That there's hope in it for me and that the exhaustion and the burnout might also be connected to me loving the fight a little too much and forgetting to also love my vision. Dreaming is pleasurable. Mm -hmm. It's so pleasurable. I love dreaming. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you to Rosie Poloka for driving all the way out to my house and being my very first interview for this podcast. To Josie Rothwell for the opening music and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing music. And thank you to our listener for joining us in the return to embodiment. <laughs>